Uh, if you have your Bibles or phones, or if you need a Bible, you can grab one over here. You can go to Psalm chapter 73. We're going to get there before we uh, get there, but we're in the middle of a series. This is week four, but it's really week two of a series uh, that we're calling Revive Us Again. And I want to do a bunch of stuff this morning. This morning is going to be a little bit different. And actually, as I'm starting to get deeper and deeper into the series, I think every week's going to be a little bit different, a little bit less preach, a little bit more teach, if that makes sense. So uh, more like a, a lecture in school. How's that sound? That sounds great, eh? Uh, more, more like that than like just read a couple of verses and yell at you for a few minutes and then read a few more verses and yell at you. It's going to be a little bit more of like teaching, a little bit more of equipping. And so um, I have a ton of stuff I want to get to uh, this morning. And so I'm, I'm going to stick close to my notes. I'm going to stick close to the script because as soon as I take my eyes off my iPad, I start to wander into really wonderful places, but it means that you you know, have to stay here till about two o'clock, and that doesn't always uh, go so well with the theater. So I'm going to stick close to my notes, but what I want to do before we jump into this morning is basically uh, set up where we've been coming from. It's Like I said, it's been a couple weeks since we really launched into this series, and I want to make sure that we all have the same base level of foundation. So two weeks ago, we spent a great deal of time unpacking uh, this idea that we call gospel saturation. We said that God's heart for his church, for you and me, is singular in its focus, that there are many places in the Bible where, where God makes it very clear for us what gospel saturation is and that this is his heart for his church. That we don't have to wonder what the mission of the church is. We don't have to wonder what the mission of your life is. God made it explicitly clear in the scriptures. And so you see this definition up on the screen. It says that gospel saturation is that every day, every man, woman, and child would have a daily encounter with Jesus and his church. This is this idea, we use this analogy, that a sponge gets completely saturated with water. It's completely full of water. It cannot take in any more water. And that God's heart for his church, for you and me, for this world, is that the world would be saturated with the gospel. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 1 that the gospel is the righteousness of God being revealed to us in Christ Jesus. So it's this idea that the world would be saturated with the reality of Jesus. The verse that we often cite uh, in, in painting this picture, and there's many verses that we could cite, but the one that we often go to is Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, which says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So that in the same way that the waters cover the sea, which is completely the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would cover the earth. This is gospel saturation, that every day every man, woman, and child would have a daily encounter with Jesus and his church. This is the heart that God has for his people. This has always been his heart. This is what he wants for us. Jesus didn't save you for you. He saved you for him. And his mission and his vision for your life is this. He didn't save you so that you could be happy. He didn't save you so that you could be wealthy. He didn't save you so that you could be prosperous. He didn't save you so that you could have your best life now. That's not why he saved you. He saved you so that you could be restored into the image and likeness in which you were created and that you would reflect that to an unbelieving world. Again, I don't, want, I don't want to go too far down this. If you weren't here two Sundays ago, go listen online. But what this starts to do then is it changes every aspect of our lives. So every nook and cranny of your life is now lived with this in mind, with gospel saturation in mind. Every penny that gets dropped into your bank account is a penny that has been given to you to be used for gospel saturation. To, to take this down to its most finite 
possibility. Every breath you breathe is not a breath unto yourself, but it's a moment, an opportunity for you to give glory to God. This is what his heart is for his church. Uh, and if you remember, we've, we flashed this up on the screen. You can throw that, uh, the chart up on the screen. Nathan redid it. He didn't like my finger painting. He's like, Chris, that was ridiculous. We've got to redo this here. We, we, we actually taught through this, through this diagram uh, a couple Sundays ago. And the reason for this diagram is essentially to say this. You hear that lofty vision. We, we can easily, it can easily get, excite us. We can get behind it, but we don't know where we fit in it. And we don't know what to do about it. We say yes, but then we go home and uh, eat, you know, eat a sandwich and watch Netflix. And then we're back to where we were. And so this is really designed to, to show us something really simple. And that is this, that before gospel saturation can happen through us, gospel saturation has to happen to us. So if we are not, if we, if you, if me, if together we're not saturated with the gospel, Gospel saturation will not happen in our city. Like, I, I hear this all the time. I don't know how to talk to my friends about Jesus. And my response is always, well, do you know him? Because I don't need to take a class or go to school or read a book on how to talk about my wife. I just do. Why? Because she's hot. I like her a lot. I could preach for hours without notes about my wife because she's wonderful. And I know her. And so what, the whole point of this is simply to say this, that the way that gospel saturation is actually going to come into our city, that the way that the Spirit of God works in and through his church is, is like this. It starts with one. It starts with one person, you, me, having a transformative encounter with the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't stay there. It isn't just one or two people. It isn't just the leaders. It isn't just the people on payroll. It isn't just the elders or your community group leader, or your DNA leader, who's, who's having these encounters with the Holy Spirit. But it actually starts to happen to all of us. It starts to corporately take place. And we talked about this idea that then we show up here on a Sunday and there's this, there's this hunger among us, this hunger to actually meet with God, that we show up here and, and it's like, man, we just want to meet with God. We, we want to we experience, we want to encounter the presence of the living God. And when that starts to happen in us as a group of collective individuals, here's what will start to take place. The Spirit of God will pour himself out on us in new and fresh ways. If we're hungry for him, if we're in pursuit of him, we have these radical encounters with him that change and transform us. And then what happens is the spirit of God starts to work through us. See, God will never do something through you that he hasn't first done in you. I mean, obviously the spirit of God will do what the spirit of God will do. But most of the time, we have to posture ourselves and position ourselves to hear from the spirit, to be changed by the reality of the gospel. And then we can start to live out the mission that Jesus has for us. And so what we've been saying is the rest of this series is us basically going back to square one. Basically going back down to ground zero. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to get this thing right back down. Like We're not going to talk about praying. We're going to talk about before we pray. Because I think a lot of times when we, if, if I was just to come up here this morning and go, you know, we need to meet with Jesus. So here, let's talk about prayer. Let's talk about how the spirit of God works. Let's talk about how prayer works. If you're anything like me, and I've, I think I've talked about this at great length already, but sometimes, you know, you, you'll have the best intentions, right? So you set the alarm early. The alarm goes off 5, 6 a.m., whatever, whatever early is for you. You get up in the morning before your feet even hit the floor. You're already cursing the idea that you're up early. You go and you make a coffee because that's... 
the first godly thing to do at that hour. And you get your Bible out and you set everything up and you're all ready to go. You're like, I'm going to read the Bible. And you go and read the Bible and it's really boring. And you fall asleep. <laughs> Especially if you're like in Leviticus, right? Like the, the skin laws, right? Like the way you're like, what? Or, or you go to pray. And again, maybe, maybe this is just me, but you, you sit down and, you know, you, you heard a sermon or maybe you had a prayer habit at one point that was, that was robust. And so out of conviction, you sit down, you're like, I'm going to meet with God. And you start to pray. And it's awkward. Uh, dear God, pray for my kids and world peace and I, I just pray Donald Trump doesn't blow the whole thing up and then ping you get a snapchat you get a notification on your phone and you're gone lost 20 minutes 60 minutes gone have you ever asked why have you ever asked why it's so hard to just sit there in stillness and pray? Have you ever asked why it's hard to sit for more than 30 seconds in the quiet without this reality of a constant distraction? I think there's reasons for why our hearts and minds are prone to wander. I've been uh, have read and rereading a great book called You Are What You Love by James K.A. Smith. Highly recommend it. We'll post a list of resources online at the end of this series or throughout this series. But here's what he says in his book, You Are What You Love. James Smith says, what we do is directly connected to what we want. And what we want is directly connected to what we love. Our wants and our longings and desires are at the core of our identity. The wellspring from which our actions and our behavior flow. Our wants reverberate from our heart, the epicenter of the human person. In other words, as people, we are driven primarily not by what we know in our head, but what we love in our hearts. This is what Smith is saying, that we're not primarily a knowledge-driven people, but we are a love-driven people. So you can know that it's a good idea to pray. You can hear a sermon on prayer. You can read books on prayer. You can listen to podcasts on prayer. You can take a master class on how to pray with the, you know, the, the greatest praying guru in the world and amass, immerse your mind in the knowledge of prayer. But here's what Smith is saying. It's not your mind that drives your actions and your behaviors. It's your heart. It's what you truly love. I, I often will tell people, you cannot fake your core values. You can say, I'm a compassionate person, but if you're not a person who demonstrates compassion, you're not actually a compassionate person. You can say, I love Jesus, but if you don't actually live a life that demonstrates you love Jesus, you don't actually love Jesus. You can come to a Sunday gathering, you can sit under teaching, you can sing songs, you can raise your hands, you can do all the things that Christians and people that claim to love Jesus are supposed to do. But in your heart, if you truly don't love him, it's not going to be genuine. And what Smith is saying is that we have to get after the heart. He goes on to say this, our loves become like our second nature. They become so woven into who you are 
that they are as natural for you as breathing and blinking. You don't have to think about or choose to do these things. They just come naturally. In other words, everything you do is connected to what you love. Your inability to pray flows naturally from your heart. Your inability to sit still flows naturally from what you love. And this has always been the case for humanity. This isn't something that's new, but, but I, would, I would submit to us that we are currently living in a, a cultural climate that makes this increasingly difficult. Let me, let me ask you a question. June 29th, 2007, does that date mean anything to anyone in the room? What's that? You were born in 2007? You're 11? That's awkward. That's awkward. We have a... Never mind. Those Barar kids. June 29th, 2007, Apple made a big announcement. They unveiled this metallic appendage. You might not know it, but this is not a part of your body. This is actually called a cell phone. Right? This thing came out. And wonderful, wonderful things have come into our lives as a result of having smartphones. But with smartphones have come some horrible things. Does anybody remember pre-2007? Okay, pre-smartphone. A lot of us were alive at that point. There was this wonderful cultural reality that we all experienced from time to time. It was called boredom. Right? You'd be sitting at the doctor's office and you'd have nothing to do. You'd be sitting on an airplane and you finished the book you were reading and you had nothing to do. You just sat there thinking. Well, it doesn't happen anymore. Now, if you're bored, you take a selfie saying, sitting at the doctor's office, really bored right now. (laughs) Or you watch a movie and play on your phone. Like, boredom is not something we experience. We're in this cultural, you know, reality where we're constantly being stimulated all the time. And listen, I don't want to be like the the grumpy old guy who's, you know, sitting on the porch yelling at all the young kids to get off his lawn. Like, I don't want to be uh, that guy. There's wonderful things as a result of technology. Like, I, I don't have to memorize anything. I can just ask my phone. It tells me it's a beautiful, beautiful gift. But we have to acknowledge that there are some realities to the technology that we have literally at our fingertips that is absolutely destroying us. Uh, attention spans have gone from, this is, what I'm, this is what I've read this week at least, from 12 and a half seconds, which is the high water mark, which is slightly terrifying, to down to seven seconds. Uh, I would say even worse than that, though, is we're losing our ability to be present. Present in the moment. We're losing our ability to just sit and be. Look around. Go, go, to, go to a restaurant, watch families. Go to a coffee shop, watch people. Sit in a church gallery. I can see you all. I know what you're doing. I see the blue light on your face. You can tell me it's the Bible, and I'll tell you you're a liar, and liars go to hell. We can't even get through a church gathering where we're worshiping Jesus without checking our social media feed. 
because we're living in a world of constant distraction. And I don't want to nerd out too hard on this here, but I, I just think this is so important. Like I watched a documentary. I'm going to post it when I'm completely done watching it. I'm going to post it on, on my social media and you can watch it on your phone, which is crazy <laughs> ironic. But we're, we're living in a culture right now that economists are calling the, the culture of uh, the economy of attention, where, where you think you own a cell phone, but the reality is your cell phone owns you. Your smartphone owns you. There are a bunch of people in Silicon Valley who are getting paid billions of dollars right now to figure out how to get you to look at that thing. I mean, tell me if this, this experience sounds familiar. You, somebody texts you a video or you go on YouTube and you go, I'm going to go watch a video. And 30, 40, 50, 60 minutes goes by. And that video was like four minutes long because I don't actually click on any of them that are longer than four because that's ridiculous. Who would watch a video that's longer than four minutes? Why is that? That's because your phone is literally dropping the next breadcrumb in front of you. That's because there are people somewhere in a room who are trying to figure out how to keep you distracted. In fact, 70% of all YouTube videos that are watched are not the initial video that a person went to YouTube to watch. They come out of the recommend section. The latest technology that we don't know about is if you have a phone with a front-facing camera, it is watching you. It is literally observing everything you do all the time. So when you're on your phone and you're Pinteresting, you know, how to make a turkey that's going to just blow the socks off your guests, it is observing your facial expressions, the dilation of your pupils, and it is connecting it to the things that you are clicking on. And this, this has implications far greater. And again, I don't want to nerd out too far here, but this has implications far greater than just, you know, what ads you're going to get on your social media feeds. This is actually influencing democracy. I would contend if we take this to the furthest extreme, you are actually being told how to think, what to believe. This is what, uh, what, what bio, uh, uh, biotechs are calling hacking the human mind. This is crazy. I want to show you a video. It's a two-minute video. This is uh, Louis C.K., never thought I would do this, okay, on the Conan O'Brien show. And we had to edit the snot out of this thing just to make it like slightly PG friendly. But I want you to watch, uh, he's getting asked whether he would buy his kids cell phones and, and why he doesn't do that. But he's going to talk about the impact of cell phones on his own uh, life. So go ahead and roll that video, guys. Yeah, exactly. You need, the thing is, I, you need to build an ability to just be yourself and not be doing something. That's what the phones yes. are taking away. Yes. Is the ability to just sit there like this. That's being a person, right? Yes. No one can, they gotta, uh, you gotta check. Because, you know, underneath everything in your life, there's that thing, that empty, forever empty. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> that, yes. Yes. Yes, I, yes. Yes, Just I know that, what you're that talking knowledge about. that it's all for nothing and you're alone. You know, it's down there. And sometimes when things clear away, you're not watching it, you're in your car and you start going, oh no, here it comes <laughs> that I'm alone. Like it starts to visit on you. You know, just the sadness. Yes. Life is tremendously sad just by, you know, being in it. And so you're driving and then you go, uh, that's why we text and drive. I look around, pretty much 100% of people driving are texting. Yes. And they're killing, everybody's murdering each other with their cars. Yes. 
But people are willing to risk taking a life and ruining their own because they don't want to be alone for a second because it's so hard. I was in my car one time and a Bruce Springsteen song comes on. And it made me really sad. It's like Jungle... What the one's the one? Jungle song? Jungle Land. Jungle, this one where he goes... Hurry! And he sounds far away. You know, I was like, so... Anyway, I started to get that sad feeling. And I was reaching for the phone. And then I said, you know what? Don't. Just be sad. Just let the sad... Just stand in the way of it. And let it hit you like a truck. And I let it come. And Bruce... And I just started to feel, oh my God. And I pulled over and I just cried. Such a trip, you like know, that. and the thing is, because we don't want that first bit of sad, you never feel completely sad or completely happy. You right. just feel kind of satisfied with your product. Yes. And then you die. So that's why I don't want to get a phone from my kids. That's what I'm <laughs> Oh man. The prophet Louis C.K., hey? But tell me that doesn't land with anybody here. Tell, tell me that doesn't just kind of resonate. That we never actually just get to experience what it means to be human. It's only going to get progressively worse. We're only going to get progressively distracted. So what's the point of all this? Like, What does this have to do with prayer? What does this have to do with gospel saturation? What does this have to do with revival? What does this have to do with the way that the Spirit of God works in our life? My contention this morning is that it has everything to do with it. Here's my big idea. We're finally getting there. My big idea is this. Distraction leads to disillusionment, while attention leads to adoration. Spiritual distraction leads to spiritual disillusionment. While paying attention to the right things, paying attention, fixing our eyes on Jesus, staring at him, actually puts our hearts in the place that we can actually worship him. So in other words, to quote James Smith, what we pay attention to is what we will learn to love. And here's my ask. This is my singular aim for you this morning. This is it. If you get nothing else, hear this. I want you to start paying attention to what you pay attention to. Uh, my newest iPhone app upgrade, whatever thing, I get this weekly uh, notification that tells me how much time I spend on average per day on my phone. And it comes on Sunday morning. It's horrible, super great that I'm about to preach this. And then this thing pops up. Three hours and 28 minutes on my phone. Doesn't factor in watching television at all. Doesn't factor in how much time I spend on my computer. And I try. Like, I'm actually trying not to be on my phone. Do we pay attention to what we pay attention to? So I want to take us through Psalm 73. In Psalm 73, what we're going to see here is, is basically two cycles uh, the first cycle is what I'm calling the cycle of disillusionment. How do we move from distraction to disillusionment? The second cycle is what I'm calling the cycle of adoration. So how do we move from this place of being spiritually disillusioned to actually a place of worship? And what we have in Psalm 73 uh, is a psalmist by the name of Asaph. And he's uh, a guy who, who wrote worship songs. He wrote prayers. He's writing, he's writing a prayer, a psalm. It's really raw. He's really just unpacking his heart. 
and, and what he's going to walk us through is, is both these cycles. And so if you put that up on the screen for me, Ian, the cycle of distraction is this. It's that we start with distraction. It leads to our distortion, which then leads to discouragement, which then presses into disobedience and ultimately leads to full-on spiritual disillusionment. See, none of us wakes up spiritually disillusioned. We get there. None of us wakes up fully ready to worship Jesus, fully prepared to hear from the Spirit of God. We get there. And so what I want to do is just kind of pull back a little bit and go, how did we get to where we are? Or how, how, like what pathway are we on? So as you're hearing us go through this, and we're just going to kind of skim through Psalm 73 very quickly. Ask yourself, where am I in this process? So the cycle of delusionment first. If you have your Bible, Psalm 73, let me start with distraction. Verses 1 and 2. Here's what Asaph writes. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But for me, and look at what he says here, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. So, so remember, this is a worship leader, okay? This is a guy who's immersed in liturgy. This is a guy, I don't know if he's doing it vocationally or not, but, but much of his life is oriented around preparing the people of God for worship. And, and what he's saying here in verses 1 and 2 is, I didn't pay attention to what I was paying attention to. I let my eyes wander, or here he uses the language, my foot almost slipped. In other words, his heart was being drawn away from worship of God. Something else was pulling on his heart. It was vying for the attention of his heart. And look at what he says next. Moves into this, this um, distraction. It leads into distortion. He says this, verse 3. And I'll just, again, I'll just skim some of this. For I envied the arrogant. As a result of my distraction, I started to envy the arrogant. Uh, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, uh, they had no struggles. Their bodies were healthy and strong. They were free from uh, common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. And on and on he goes. And he lists off all of these things that as he's distracted, he's not staring at Jesus. He's distracted. He's looking at something else. It leads to this distorted view of reality where the gospel, the reality of what God has done for him, the reality of uh, the love of God washed over his life is no longer the lens through which he sees all things. Now he sees all of life through, through another reality. Uh, this is the equivalent of you going on your social media feed, right? This is exactly what this sounds like. I, I was on social media and I just, she's had three kids and she looks like that in that dress. That's ridiculous, right? Like this is our life. We live this life of comparison. And when we, when we live this life of comparison, ultimately what we're doing, if we're, not, if we're not paying attention to what we're paying attention to, is we're not allowing the gospel to inform our reality. That other things are starting to crowd in. That we, like, just think about, just use, like, common sense with me for a second, please. And I don't want to make this like an anti-cell phone sermon, an anti-screen sermon. That's not what I'm doing. But just imagine the effects of staring at a screen for the number of hours a day you stare at it. Not just like the physical effects, but the actual spiritual effects that it has on your heart. When you allow yourself to be formed, when you allow yourself to be discipled by the world. It's crazy. 
Like how, how many of us, you know, you're familiar with the term binge watching, right? Like we, we binge watch on Netflix. Uh, imagine we applied that term to just about anything else, right? I binge ate hamburgers. We'd be like, that's probably not a good idea. I binge smoked cigarettes. Like, yeah, you should probably, I, I binged out on alcohol. Probably not a great idea. But Netflix, binge watching, we call that Saturday. Tommy Wu, in a book he wrote called Attention Merchants, said this, a Netflix poll found 61% of people defined their viewing style as binge watching, which meant two to six episodes at a sitting. Guilty. Grant McCracken, a cultural anthropologist, paid, check this out, paid by Netflix to investigate and promote the habit, reported that TV viewers are no longer zoning out as a way to forget about their day, but rather they are tuning in on their own schedule to a different world. Getting immersed in multiple episodes or even multiple seasons of a show over a few weeks is a new kind of escapism that is especially welcomed today. If you don't think watching a season of Ozark is going to affect your heart, you're kidding yourself. You're kidding yourself. It's distorting your reality. You're basically sitting under an alternate sermon all the time, and it's forming you, and it's shaping you. And here's where it leads to distraction, leads to distortion, which leads to discouragement. Verses 11 and 12 of Psalm 73 they say, how does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always care, always free of care, and they go on amassing wealth. In other words, here's what happens. Your vision and values become completely misaligned with the reality of the gospel, and you're left in a state of hopelessness. And like Asaph, you ask the question, what's the point? What's the point? Does this even matter? Discouragement then leads into disobedience. Verses 13 and 14, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. At this point you're in a dark place. You're completely being formed by the gospel of culture and you're at this point where you're willing to make an idol out of nearly anything. Your appearance your wealth, your kids, your marriage, your contentment. You're willing to compromise on what you know the gospel would call you to because you're sliding down this path of disillusionment. Your vision has become so blurry that you even start to question, like, what's the point of being connected to a church? Like, what's the big deal? I come here on Sunday. It doesn't really change me. Nothing really happens. I don't really get it. Community groups are big waste of time. Those people are all annoying. The food's not that great anyway. DNA is just awkward. I don't want to do this anymore. What's happening? You're on the fast track to disillusionment. You're getting there. If you're saying these things right now, that's the trajectory you're on. And then this leads to ultimate disillusionment, verses 15 and 16. He 
says, if I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Basically, why bother? None of this matters anyway. How did he get there? By not paying attention to what he was paying attention to. The only way to recover from this state of mind, if this is where you are right now, is to start paying attention to what you're paying attention to. And then start to reorient your heart towards the right thing. Now, I don't want you to feel completely beaten down this morning, but here's the reality. Some of us are in a dark place. Some of us feel like God's unfair. Some of us feel like we've been dealt a bad hand. We're discouraged, we're disillusioned, and we're starting to live a life of compromise as a result of it. This is how it happens. You don't wake up living with someone you're not married to, sleeping around, worshiping idols, worshiping your family, worshiping your house, worshiping your health, worshiping, you don't just wake up there. You get there, and this is how you get there, by not paying attention to what you're paying attention to. It starts small, and it grows from there. And we have to address this. But before we even move on to talk about, like, we're going to start talking about, like, what does it mean to pray? What does it mean to fast? What does it mean to uh, be filled with the Holy Spirit? And if, if, we, if you don't even deal with this, you're, you're going to be like, pray? What are you talking about? Like, shut up. Just move on. I'm not interested. And so I want you to ask yourself, what am I paying attention to? What am I paying attention to? Because if we properly fix our attention, it could lead into a place of worship and encounter with the presence of God. It has the potential to change us, heal us, restore us, and ultimately flow through us into our city. But it starts here. So that's the cycle of distraction and disillusionment. What about the cycle of adoration? You can throw this slide up on the screen as well, Ian. The cycle of adoration starts with us paying attention to what we're paying attention to. And once we start to do that, it moves into us having a, a right awareness and then a right acknowledgement of who God is and then an appreciation for the reality of the gospel. And then ultimately, we come into this place of what I want to call encounter, where we actually encounter the living God. Look at verse 17. Look at what, look at what Asaph writes. And this is where he starts to pay attention. So things were bad. He was disillusioned. Verse 17 Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. So Asaph was in this place of lostness. He was in this place of disillusionment. He was in this uh, place of brokenness. And then something happened. He came into the sanctuary. The reality of the gospel hit him like a truck, like a wave, like a tsunami. It just washed over him. And what happened? The fog started to clear. You could see clearly again. And let me, let me just be clear about this. This is why we encourage healthy rhythms in our life. Like the average follower of Jesus shows up to a Sunday gathering once every four weeks. That's not enough. And not because you need to earn 
favor with God by coming to church, but because you stare at your phone for five hours a day, immersed in the gospel of culture, and you need to come here and be reminded of the goodness and grace of Jesus. This is why we encourage uh, you to be involved in a community group, because at the very least, you will meet together once a week. We hope it happens more than that. But at the very least, you will come together with a group of people, share a meal, and all that is going to do is remind you that the people of God are good. You might not like them, but they're good. That's why we encourage people to be in DNA, because we need these reminders. We are very forgetful, forgetful people. We need the gospel preached to us all the time. So Asaph pays attention to what he's paying attention to, and this shifts into awareness. Verses 18 and 22, we won't read there for the sake of time, but, but what he starts to do is he starts to become aware of the grace of God. When you have your eyes and your heart fixed on Jesus, the fog clears, and you can see the world as it truly is. You start living, stop living rather, under the false gospel of culture. You stop living under the false mantras of whoever dies with the most toys wins. You stop living for things that cannot satisfy the deepest longings of the soul because you see, you see Jesus. It actually starts to change and transform you, and this then shifts into acknowledgement. Again, for the sake of time, we won't read, but verses 21 to 24 Previously, Asaph asked the question, what's the point? In verse 23, he says, you hold me by my right hand. Asaph saying, you did save me. You are saving me. You will save me. I understand who you truly are. And now your hope is being transferred from other things into God you can actually start to encounter him and worship him. Why do we think if we haven't paid attention to him at all that we can enter into his presence and somehow it's going to be like this magical pill or experience that will change and transform us? Will God meet with you? Yes, absolutely. But if I just show up at the gym after taking 10 years off and expect to get fit after 45 minutes or that to even be a pleasurable experience, I am sadly mistaken. It's not how it works. Eugene Peterson describes the life of a Christian as a long obedience in the same direction. And this ultimately, this ultimately leads to appreciation. It's when you're in a good place, you have total clarity. Is your life perfect? No, not at all. And you don't hold God accountable for that because you recognize that you have been given the richest blessings in the gospel, you are now co-heirs with Christ. And you have what I call these pinch me moments. Where you're just kind of like sitting there, sipping a coffee or doing something that just kind of stirs the affections of your soul. And you're like, wow. I'm a son. I'm a daughter. I've been adopted into the family of God. Yeah, I might have cancer. Yeah, I may have lost my job. Yeah, life may not be going the way I want it to go, but all of this has been given to me. I am his and he is mine. And this leads into adoration. Verses 27 and 28. This 
place where you find your full rest in God. You have full encounter with him. Your heart is attuned with him. Like Genesis 1 and 2, it feels as if you're walking with him in the cool of the garden. Like the Apostle Paul talks about, you know, where he talks about praying without ceasing. You can actually be in this place of encounter. This is God's heart. So let me ask you, I'm winding down. Let me ask you, you ask yourself, you ask the spirit, which cycle are you on? Disillusionment? Distraction? Or attention and adoration? And where are you? I invite Nathan and the band to come up. Here's where I'm going to land. I'm going to move us into a time of response by leaving you with two choices. The first one is this. You can stay distracted. You can stay in your cycle of disillusionment. Or you can start to pay attention to what you pay attention to and begin to cultivate an appreciation for the presence of God in your life. So where do we go from here? Not a big cliffhanger fan, but that's where we're going to pick up next week. But here's your homework. This week, here's your challenge. Ask the Spirit of God every day. Take 10 minutes every day. Build this rhythm into your life. Set, as ridiculous as it sounds, set the appointment in your phone and ask the question, Spirit, what did I pay attention to today? Every day, make this a rhythm. The doorway to encounter with the presence of God is this, paying attention to what you pay attention to. We're gonna respond. God is good. We're going to respond in singing. Some of you may have some business to do with God. We're going to give you a moment to do that. Uh, Ken and Rena will be in the back. If you just have sin to confess or something you need prayer for, you can go back there and receive it. We're going to give, as Andrew said, we're going to give like Jesus, who's given us so much. And we're going to come forward and take communion. And communion, it, again, it's one of those things that we just do it. Right? We kind of come and do it. And someone asked me the other couple weeks ago, another church leader friend of mine, he said, he said, man, when you do communion every week, doesn't it get old and stale? I'm like, well, sometimes, yeah. Sometimes I think we kind of take it for granted. But there's a reason we do it every week. There's no verse that tells us we have to do it every week. We just feel like this is a good rhythm for us to have as a people to hear the word of God, to come forward, and to be reminded every single week, explicitly reminded to come face to face with the reality that Jesus Christ gave his life for us. You're going to come forward and you're going to hear somebody say to you, they're going to hold a basket up that has a cracker in it. 
but hopefully they have enough courage to look you in the eye. And they're going to say to you, they're going to whisper to you, Christ's body broken for you. And then you're going to take it and you're going to shuffle over to, to the side and you're going to dip it in either the wine or the juice. And someone's going to hopefully have enough courage to look you in the eye. And they're going to say to you, Christ's blood poured out, shed for you. This is our verse 17 moment. This is our till I entered the sanctuary of God moment when everything becomes clear. So you can come down and have a end of the gathering snack and wander off and get your kids and be, you know, be the front of the line at Costco. It's totally a thing you can do. We'll judge you for it at staff meeting and that's okay, don't worry. Day of reckoning's coming, it's between you and Jesus. Or you can have a verse 17 moment. Right? Like, don't just come because, oh, we're supposed to come now. Wait, like, just wait. Sing a moment. Encounter the Spirit for a moment. Ask the Spirit what you need to repent of for a moment. Thank Jesus for a moment before you come. And then come and stand in the sanctuary. Let me pray for us. You'd bow your heads, close your eyes. I want to just give us a moment. Spirit, even if we don't ask for it, I invite you to come. Sift our hearts. Expose them. Church, if you just want to hear from the Spirit this morning, there's nothing magical about this. This, this isn't anything, but I'm just going to invite you just to palms up on your lap. Just put your hands out. I'm a willing vessel this morning. I want to hear from you, Spirit. I want to hear. A lot of times our hearts will follow our bodies. It's a posture of worship. So, Spirit, we say, come. Show us what's in there. And then as Paul says in Romans 5, pour out the love of the Father into our hearts that we would be reminded of Jesus who does not leave us in a place of brokenness, doesn't leave us disheveled, but picks us up out of the mud and mire, cleans us up and places our feet on the rock. And as we respond, Lord Jesus, would you just make this a place, a space, a Psalm 73 verse 17 moment for us. the fog would be cut back, the veil would be lifted. And we would see you as you truly are.